You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I go in as an anthropologist with the assumption that what you're doing has in some way is purposeful, right? Because if, if I were to say, just to take guitars, guitar playing, if I were to say guitar playing, what a freaking waste of time. So dumb, so stupid. We would agree. <laughs> it, it really is though. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, my name is Benny Goodman. I'm here with my good friends and my compatriots, Corey Peza and Siobhan Cronin, certainly not in order of beauty. How are you guys? Doing well. I'm excited for this episode better before today. That comment. I'm sorry, But Corey. you came first, you're, you're, so you should have been excited about that. You, you are, are listening you are before beautiful. me. <laughs> but I'm so excited today because just continuing in our giant line of people that are way above our pay grade. They have no business talking to us that I can't even believe we scammed them to come on in the show because out of our league in every single possible way. The the lady, the woman, the force of nature we're talking to today. She's a creative director at Google. But if you go to her LinkedIn, everything from graduating from Harvard, I, I didn't even graduate. So, I mean, for F's sake, already winning. And then writes for magazines, has her own podcast, is a speaker, uh, not like the actual speaker on a, on a stereo, but like she speaks for people that pay her to like listen to her knowledge. I mean, it's an amazing thing. But today we have Abigail Posner, literally one of the smartest trailblazing women out there. And we've conned her on being on the show. Hi, Abigail. How are Hi. you? I, I was expecting you were going to make fun of me. That was kind of the oh, that's decision, coming. right? Don't worry. Oh, just, okay. Just wait. <laughs> Plenty of time for that. Because that intro, like, I am totally keeping it and and uh, you know putting it in my back pocket for every other uh, every other intro. <laughs> yeah, he's very good at reeling people in with his compliments, and then and then everything else comes later. So yeah, well, I'm sold. <laughs> I'm sold on myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome to the show. I'm super excited. I mean, I love to have another female entrepreneur, like trailblazer on the show. Not to say that I am at all, but I'm inspired by you. And um, yeah, I mean, we a lot of the guests we have come from music or entertainment. So I think it's going to be super interesting to talk to you and like hear some of the stuff that you did. And I guess just to start off for people that don't know who you are, what you do, can you just give us a background of like sort of your upbringing, your education, how you kind of went down the path that you went to end up where you are? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, people may, may be surprised to hear that I studied anthropology, um, social anthropology. I loved it. It was awesome. And, and basically, if you think about what the study of anthropology is, it's the study of why people do what we do, right? You know, why we eat what we eat or listen to the music that we do or dance the way we do. Um, and so that love of that sense of curiosity and that love of really understanding why um, why human beings are the way we are, um, really had, interestingly, more applicability to other worlds than I ever realized. And I knew that I didn't want to go and get a graduate school degree. 
um, much to my parents' dismay. They're like, what are you going to do with your life if you don't have a you know, PhD? They just couldn't understand that. I wanted to work. I wanted to be in the world, um, you know, be part of the, the, the dynamic place that is kind of, you know, everyday life versus in an ivory tower. So I went into the business world. And then, you know, I realized that there was so much opportunity to, not that they realized it, but I realized it. Um, I got a lot of closed doors because <laughs> um, not everybody was aware of it at the time, but that there was a, a real need to apply a sense of understanding of human beings to every kind of industry. Um, and so, you know, I'm going to skip over my year in management consulting because that doesn't count and it was terrible. Um, I, I was able to find a gig in advertising and I didn't really know what advertising was I didn't I grew up in academia I grew up in Boston right next to Betty and like you know everyone's an academic every it's like what is advertising all I remember speaking of you know talking about the 90s 90210 like to me that was like the closest you could get to um no not 90210 was what was the other one Melrose um, Place. The, Melrose, yeah Melrose Place right the same the same genre right same thing um but it was a PR company so that was like what I knew of advertising and I just so was you like, had the Locklear yeah, Heather Locklear, like, like that. No, she looked hot, but I was like, "There's, I can't be her. Like, that just doesn't compute. Um, but at the time, advertising was, rightly so, opening themselves up to anthropologists and anthropology. Because if you think about it, how do you sell something to someone if you don't really understand them? So here I was, you know, hot off the you know, the trail of being in management consulting and I wanted anything and anything. And they liked the fact that I studied anthropology. So I jumped right in and fell in love with that for a very long time. And, and really what I had to do there was understand why people buy what we buy, right? Everything from guitars to the music we buy to fast food, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and really digging in and understanding the answers to those whys enabled us to come up with so many new concepts, whether it was advertising concepts, new product ideas for our clients, whatever. Okay. So um, that was great for a long time, but uh, I was ready for something else. And I wanted to really push this humanistic approach uh, way beyond advertising and into other worlds. Hold and on. Can I stop you there? Because I'm, I'm a guitar player. You're using these polysyllabic words and hum humanistic. Does that okay. mean like all the assholes out there? Like, what do like, you mean by humanistic? It means understanding human beings, which we all are. Right. We're all human beings. So I'm not sure I, Siobhan is. I'm pretty sure she's a robot. <laughs> if you rip off her face, she's so good at music. If you told me she was programmed and downloaded the MIDI to her brain, I believe you. <laughs> Well, be careful what, what you say because, you know, hey, I work at Google. So if, if there's a AI robot listening. in front of me, I know, I know, I may have to steal, I may have to steal her and bring her back to the lab. Um, but, uh, but anyway, you know, what, I, what I'm referring to is really just kind of understanding, bringing a human lens to other worlds, meaning business world, meaning um, retail Right. Like and, and, and so just to go a level deeper, what that means is truly understanding what motivates people, putting putting products, putting um, services um, through the lens of human language, storytelling, understanding really what ultimately motivates people. 
So I'll this give you is an not example. to stop you, like, but, yeah. what, but this is really interesting because it seems almost kind of backwards to me. You would think that so many of these industries would have started with the fundamental of we are selling to humans. So like it, it, it's interesting no to me that, that that's like that we had to go through this massive development and in industry for this now to be an opening where it's like, oh, we are actually dealing with living, breathing human beings and let's try and understand them. What Like, why do you think that happened or I, I guess you can go on with what you were saying, but, but it's, no, no, it's, no, it's I can dig into it. Yeah, sure. I mean, marketing itself was not really a concept in the business world until six, the sixties, the seventies, you know, you didn't really have marketing departments. The, the role of the chief marketing officer wasn't a real thing until I don't know the '90s. Or I saw Mad Men. John Hamm's a real person. That absolutely happened. <laughs> but he's an ad guy. Yeah. He's an ad guy. He makes pictures. Okay. Don't tell that to so, John Hamm. Right? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, well, good thing John Hamm now is Chevy Chase in that in that movie. Uh, he no longer makes pictures, but uh, instead he goes back. He goes after bad guys. But yeah, if you go back to the history of like advertising, advertising agencies. Were the, were the ones doing the marketing for most companies. So because what is the difference between simply, advertising and marketing? Not to interrupt you again, but that's no, an no, it's okay. Yeah, they're they're related. They're sister and brothers. Um, marketing is if you actually decode the word, right? You are putting something out into the marketplace, and as such, if you're putting it out there, that means you kind of have to be closer to the folks out there who's who are consuming it which is different than sales or operations or product development, right? So product development, as it sounds, you're the ones behind the lab, you're coming up with the concepts, you're coming up with an idea, like a guitar, you know, how do we improve upon the guitar? Let's do some figuring this out, okay? That's one role. Operations maybe, okay, well how, and um, um, you know, sales flow type thinking, right? How do I get that guitar manufactured as quickly as possible with the right people in place, get it into the cars and the trucks to then go to the stores, right? There are people who deal with that. Um, supply chain management type, right? Um, which was, you know, a real challenge during COVID, for example, right? The supply chain got screwed up. Okay. Um, so it's an important role. Then you have uh, people who are salespeople. And most of those salespeople, unless you're talking about like, um, what's that makeup brand where people would go door to door? I forget what Oh, it was is it called. Mary Kay? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like most salespeople don't literally sell directly to people. They sell to a store. They sell to a website. They sell, okay. So the people who then think about how to make that guitar really sexy in the eyes of the end user Benny, are the marketing people. They go, what, what, do, what can I do to make that guitar more valuable than just the, the components of the guitar and how much it costs to get from the factory to the store? They give it a brand, mm. right? And they color that brand with messages. You know, this guitar is so awesome because it does this and does that and does this and that. And let me tell you through the vehicle of a concert, I'm going to tell you that story through a TV spot. I'm going to tell you that story through, a, you know, email. I'm going to tell you that story. So the marketing people focus on telling that story 
elevating the premiumness of that product. But to do that, they have to know, well, what, what does premium mean? What do people want to hear? What language do people speak? I mean, literally and figuratively. Right? Hold on. Can I, can I just extrapolate from some of the things that you're saying? You used so a big are word. You, used are a big you, word. <laughs> I've been, I, I was going to say demystify for the following. I've been writing this down so I can impress you, Abigail. Yeah, uh-huh. My question is, are you the reason that Facebook and its feed says, we're not listening to you. We've just anticipated everything about you. So when you say something out loud, we're anthropologists. We understand you as a human. So therefore, we're just going to show you guitars, pretty women, and food. And I'll be like, I just talked about guitars, pretty women, and food. And then I go to my Facebook How'd feed. How'd you know? Is, is, right. that, is that you that's made Facebook and all these other things so smart that I feel like it's listening to me, but really it just knows me so well? Right. Well, I don't work for Facebook, so I can't well, say. Well, I mean, just I the, can't holistically, real, the really, technology, the yes, thought process. Yes. So, 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 yeah. I mean, Google As an is anthropologist easy. first. Google is similar, right? So we leverage um, en masse, not individually. We leverage uh, people's search queries because um, your search is basically a reflection of your intent. And so if we know your intent, we know how to meet your needs, technologically speaking, with ads that reflect what you are, what you really are, are caring about. So yes, that is a combo of technology meets marketing. So there are now so many technological uh, uh, services out there and products out there to help with that marketing process. Google has a ton of them. I'm not here to sell Google, but like there, there are so many ways that uh, technology has evolved to ensure better matches so that Benny, you know, we know exactly the type of hotness of a woman you're investigating to, you know, put on your feed, right? Or exactly what kind of guitars you like because you've been searching for these guitars. Well, you're scaring me though, but what if I search for things that I don't want my fiance knowing about? But then right. all of a sudden all these ads start showing up for, well, oh, you no, can go, you can sites. go, you can go incognito mode. You, you know, so then they- Is that they, a real thing or the, do yes! they still take the notes down? They, so does Google just go, I'm just going to turn my back to that now. Well, and by the way, again, we don't <laughs> t- we don't think about individuals. We think about, uh, you know, people en masse. So they're not going after Benny Goodman and saying- We're just Benny. ants, basically. Right. <laughs> I would like to think that Google is watching him. Yeah, well- It, it, it is. Hold on. I want to tell you this for a true story. The other night I realized that I saw the light on my camera on, on my screen over there and on this over here. And I go on Google and I'm like, why would my light be on? Like someone's watching you. So I literally got this thing to cover my camera. Yeah, my husband does because, that. Because Google is, oh, Google's watching me. Because I realized it was off and other times. I'm like, what? Are they Here's the thing, at? Ben. It's not Google. It's Exactly. It's, it's some someone in a Chinese basement exactly. from a weird ass video you downloaded. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a really sad video exactly. for them. Google, but. Google doesn't want to watch you. Okay, I'll tell you who wants to watch you is like yeah, some little horny kid. <laughs> but but anyway, so just to to just to finish, you know, go full full circle. So I've always been um, I've always been uh, totally enthralled by what people do and, and how to leverage those insights to create anything, whether it's an ad, a toilet, a podcast. Um, and in fact, when I first came to Google and 
they they didn't really know what to do with me. They, they knew they they wanted someone like me, but they didn't really know what to do with me. With me. So, um, which is probably the best position for me to be in. So I can just basically craft my, you know, my my direction. But when I first got there, what I had noticed was there was a lot of data, as we discussed. There was a lot of data, both you know, within Google, in the industry about what people were doing with technology, you know, how often they were on their phones or how many times they were watching, you know, the neurotic guitarist on YouTube or whatever, right? All this data. I love it. She dropped about, it. Thank you. <laughs> and yeah, Neuroticguitarist.com. Thanks, Abigail. <laughs> we loved it. You see, I'm, I'm plugging you in your own show. Um, so, you know, we had this data on how much people were doing things, how many clicks it took to get to a sale, right? But nobody was investigating why. Why were we watching the neurotic guitarist and not ants climbing up a hill? Or why were we watching ants climbing up at a hill? Why was that the most watched video? Or why did it take so many clicks to get to a sale? Or why were people on their phone so much? Is it just because they like having their phone around and secure? Like, so I, again, leveraged my anthropology background and we did something that had never been done in the industry and we hired a whole slew of PhD anthropologists, people much smarter than me, went into the field and they investigated all these things, you know, year after year after year, it wasn't all one fell swoop, but VR, video, um, our phones, social media, to understand really what is the nature of our deep emotional relationship to all these technologies. So that, that and we called it humanizing digital. Um, but eventually, uh, as my career progressed, I ended up um, being much more sales focused, actually. And so now I, I, uh, I am honored to be leading a team, coming full circle in a way, um, leading a team of uh, creative thinkers, so creative directors, creative effectiveness folks, creative strategists, and they help advertisers, large advertisers, create advertising and content for YouTube. But underneath it all, we leverage our understanding of human beings so that those ads, that content can be as meaningful and powerful as possible. That's amazing. Well, go ahead. Just out of curiosity, since I mean, I took a lot of different classes in college, but I never took an anthropology course. And I'm just curious, what what does that education look like? I mean, what sorts of things are you studying? Like, I'm just curious to hear like that yeah. your fascination with that background. You know, I uh, I never knew what anthropology was. This is why I advocate for everybody if they can to go to a liberal arts college because they're forced into studying things they never would have imagined they they would want to study. I remember in high school that I I had flunked my 12th grade European history test. And I was called into the, to my, um, I went to a very, very small school. And so the same person who was my history professor also happened to be my college advisor. And he's like flummoxed. He's like, I don't know what to do with you. You flunked your European history test, but you got an A on your European history paper. He's like, what? I, I can't compute that. Well, the reason I flunked it was that it was all like dates and edicts and shit like that. I couldn't remember any of it. I loved writing my European history paper because it was all about witches in Europe and why witches were women and what that really, the, the misogyny that was going on. And I could go layers and layers and layers and layers deep. And so it was fascinating. And I was like, well, I, 
I don't know how to explain that. And then I realized, okay, what I like is culture and what I was able to explore of the cultures of these different regions and different moments in time versus what Napoleon had did in, you know, whatever date on the 13th of May. So, but I didn't, I didn't know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or uh, on a Thursday. So. Bill and Ted went there. I watched that movie. (laughs) I'm glad. I'm glad you got your history lesson then. Uh, You know, it sounds like it, uh, it gave you, it it resonated. Yeah, I know. So um, when I got to college, I knew, I knew I liked this aspect, but I didn't like history. And then um, a fluke, I couldn't get into the Chinese revolution class because it was sold out. This was Harvard University in Boston, Massachusetts, Cambridge, correct? Yeah, yeah it was. It was. Let's just cl- clarify that because I went to uh, Worcester State College for a little bit and it was it was really esteemed university. But we're talking about like Harvard though, right? That like that place with like totally. Matt Damon. Where I, he became... I was such an imposter though, man. Like there, there, I should not have been there. I just, it was just luck. Tell that to the deans at Harvard. <laughs> I know. Don't let them know. They may rescind. They, they may rescind my diploma. You're, all, but, you're um, only working at Google, like no big deal. <laughs> no, but go uh, on with your story. This is interesting. Okay. So, uh, well, it was interesting to me. It may not be interesting to all of you, but we love it. I so I, I couldn't get into the Chinese Revolution Cultural Revolution class. So I took the next best thing, which was a, a, a class on Iran and their revolution, and I fell in love. I fell in love. I was like, this is so cool. And um, I, I remember like little, little elements of the course that just, they still, they still are active in my brain because they were just so fascinating. And I said, I like this thing, this culture thing. How do I get me more of this? And then I was, I, I happened upon anthropology 101 and the rest is history. And then it, and if you want to get really nerdy, and geek out. There are subsets of anthropology. At Harvard, anthropology is a big deal. It's not like some other schools. It's kind of like you minor in anthropology. You know, anthropology is a big deal. And um, <clears throat> I focused in on something called economic anthropology, right? So that became my focus. And I did a thesis um, and lo- loved every second of it. What was your thesis on? As I said, I, I really was fascinated with economic anthropology. And, and really what the, the premise of that, if you think about what, what is economics really, it's exchange, right? And our form of currency is money. And, um, you know, you exchange a good guitar for cash. Okay. But in other cultures, it can be the exchange of anything of value. It could be money. It could be ideas. It was really fascinating to me to get into to that side of, of the world. And I, and I actually then got fascinated with how we can um, envelop culture with business and how you, you know, people just think of business as numbers, 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 but no, there's so many values imbued in how we think about business and conduct business. Just go overseas and you see that. So I, I really fell in love with that side of the, of, of economic, of anthropology. So what did I do for my thesis? Okay. Well, I had a boyfriend that starts off everything, right? That's the answer to everything. I had a boyfriend. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> who, um, he was Israeli. He was my first love. And um, he actually broke up with me. But there was no way in hell I wasn't going to try to chase him, you know, and get him back. But but despite that, 
um, because I had spent so many summers with him in Israel, I I was very familiar with what's called a shuk. You know, and there's many different a shuk or souk in Arabic. You know, these open markets, these open bazaars, and they have a lot of them in Israel. And one in particular that I used to shop at was right or like very near where this boyfriend of mine lived. And so I kind of knew that area. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be fascinating to explore why this old fashioned shuk is still thriving despite the huge 24 hour hypermarkets? I mean, Jews love food. Okay. So the 24 hour hypermarkets that you would have in the cities, like what the fuck? Like why are, why are these, these, these shukim, these shuks should, should have just died and they didn't. So I wanted to explore what is going on at, you know, behind the scenes that is enabling this, um, these, these markets to still thrive. And, the, and, and so I had various answers for it, but um, so I was able to combine my, my background, which I could speak Hebrew and I knew the, I, I you have to do field work in a foreign environment. So that was my foreign environment. But I, so I spoke Hebrew, I knew the land, uh, I had this boyfriend I had to chase and um, I had a subject matter that I, I knew a bit about. And so there you go. And so I was like literally in that shook every single day, never had to buy an ounce of food. I mean, they all fed me. In the beginning, it was a little <clears throat> scary. I mean, they're like, they either thought I was from the IRS, like the equivalent to the IRS, <laughs> or they were like, you're, you're bait, like come back and, you know, I'll rape you or whatever. I mean, it was like really bizarro in the beginning. But then bizarro. you find your- <laughs> I like that, bizarre, but bizarro, was it a exactly. pun intended? Or was it that was a subconscious pun? Could have, you know what? It was certainly not conscious. So thank you for bringing that to light. We got a, We got a psychologist in the room. <laughs> well, so what was what was the answer? What what was the conclusion you came to about well, why they they thrived or continued going? Yeah, on? there were there were multiple levels of. I mean, gosh, maybe you're, I'm old, so you're having me go back many, many, many years. <laughs> um, but it, um, I explained it. There were kind of three levels of. Um, resistance going on. Uh, and it's there's cultural resistance, there was political resistance, there was economic resistance. Interestingly, I was able to find the lawyer, there was this major lawyer who was um, supporting the the sellers in the shuk because there were there were attempts to from the government to 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 eradicate the shook and actually create a highway through it. Oh, wow. And this guy was a big time lawyer and he was able to get in and stop that. I was able to get his dot. Now, it turns out I ended up having a relationship with him. So I was able to get like all these like special documents you that explain, <laughs> you know, look, you got to use what you got, right? You gotta, Wait, did you use this guy against the other dude in Israel? So you're like, all right, he doesn't like me. No. So I'm just going to make him jealous. The other showing dude, up the other dude was dust. You know, by like day number two, he was like dust. I'm like, forget it. And then when I had, you know, and here was this like, you know, this, uh, Glamorous lawyer and now he did you gave meet him me, at the bars on Ben Yehuda Street? Uh, no, this was Tel Aviv, and okay. I, I guess it was his brother that worked in the shuk. But this guy, um, this guy elevated himself beyond, you know, and, and got became a lawyer and became a huge lawyer. Uh, and so, you know, it was it was just fun all around. Mm -hmm. I I got my documents, I got my interviews in, I was able to. 
go vacation with him. It was perfect. <laughs> there you go. So what I was going to say earlier, we obviously don't often have an anthrop- anthropologist on the show. So like just trying to like get an overall grasp of, of what that means is, is fascinating. Um, one thing I'd like to understand, we do talk to a lot of musicians. And one thing we've covered a few times is musicians that know a ton about music and go really deep into either production or music theory and stuff like that. They can never look at music or recordings or performances the same way because they're you know analyzing all these details. So as someone who studies people and what makes them like you know make their decisions how how has that affected your view of humanity yeah great question (laughs) it is such a great question and i love that you asked that question i have a a number of answers but the probably the most dare i say profound it's not because i'm not profound but i think (laughs) the concept is profound is that anthropologists by by virtue of being anthropologists they have to look at human beings in a particular way. In, in, in other words, I go in as an anthropologist with the assumption that what you're doing has in some way is purposeful, right? Because if, if I were to say, just to take guitars, guitar playing, if I were to say guitar playing, what a freaking waste of time. So dumb, so stupid. We would agree. It, it really is, though. <laughs> Way to be broke, Abigail. Just go to the shook. You seem to be doing okay. Uh, uh, I So I, you can't speak to that. But if I were to say that, right, then why would I want to investigate why you're playing guitars? Right? Because I would just assume that you're a dunce. But if I believe... If my ingoing assumption is you do things for a reason, you do things for a purpose, meaning to somehow make the world tomorrow a little bit better than today, right? To somehow grow, to somehow build, to somehow make your kids safer, right? If I if that's my ingoing assumption, then yeah, I would want to understand why you're playing guitar all day. It seems inconsistent with that, but I believe that you're doing things for a reason. It's to woo you. To woo women that look like Abigail to come talk to us about our why we play. I, all I've waited all my life for for someone like you to ask me. Why but that's I what play. I did with you, right? I was like, what, what? I'm not, a, you know. And I remember. Let me just say an aside. When Eddie was mentioning, Eddie's my producer. And when Eddie was saying, oh, "You're going to speak to this neurotic guitarist guy," I was like, "What? I I don't even know what he's talking about. I can't like." Wah. And then we decided actually this could be great because I would force you, Benny, to decode what you do to make sense as a human being, not necessarily as an expert guitarist, right? That there's something in there for everybody to learn and grow from. So at the at the most fundamental level, anthropologists have kind of um, a, a an assumption of positive intent. I was going to say this. I feel like every person in the world should take an anthropology course because it seems like it generates very empathetic yes. approaches to things, which is like a massive thing that's missing in the world. Just just as an aside, I mean that's that's Absolutely. an incredible background to have for like changing the way that you approach other people and and other Absolutely. you know foreign concepts. You know, Absolutely. Oh, I, I have a question. If you're studying anthropology in school. And you and you are studying with someone, let's say, on a Friday night for your anthropology class, and they have no empathy. Is that a good way to smoke out the sociopaths? <laughs> uh, see, there's a psychologist in the room again. 
Um, I have that, that. I'm stumped with that. I'll, let me take that back and, and research like, it. I'm we so often, sorry, man. We often well, anyway, feel the same we're, way. We're off the rails. Well, let's go yeah. back to Corey's question. So you were saying the most. You know, this is the most profound. You yeah. Know, so I. So I think like, hey, if if everybody could look at the world that way and say. People are doing things for a reason. You may not understand it. And if you have a little bit of a curiosity chip inside of you, you go in and try to understand it and you will be enlightened. I mean, wow, what a wonderful place that would be, right? So, um, so, so yeah, I think that's what's, that's, that's critical. And, and, and then again, you know, anthropology has been my crutch, quite frankly, because if I didn't, you know, if someone said to me, go make a new type of toilet paper, I'd be like... I don't understand pulp and I don't understand like, you know, how to use a machine to make a toilet paper roll, but I understand people. So I'd always go back to, well, how do I get underneath the skin of people and their need for toilet paper or a different type of toilet paper? So for me, it was always such a, and, and ironically it was novel for people. So like when I went to Google and I said to them, Hey, look, I, I think we need to employ some anthropologists, give me some money. And at first they're like, what? <laughs> you know? They looked at me like I had three heads, but they're like, all right, go, go try it, see what happens. So it was, it was both a crutch when I didn't have a way to solve a problem. And it was something that helped me stand out because no one else in my spheres looked at the world like that. Um, so it's been, it's just been something that has helped me tremendously uh, and then there are times when I really have to um, use it more than I th I think I am, you know, uh, to bring to bring um, anything, whether it's a sales pitch, um, how you're going to conduct an internal meeting, like all of that needs to needs to have a human lens to it. Do you ever find that even outside of your work, you kind of switch into that mode and start analyzing things that maybe you should just set back and like take off the anthropologist hat, so to speak? Yeah, are you constantly judgy is what he's asking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think she's the anti-judgy. I think yeah. that's the whole right. point. Yeah. I, I, I am looking That's at the irony, Siobhan. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> I know. I, I really need Siobhan to, to like go with me everywhere and remind me, like, this is what you do. This is a I'll good be your thing. hype woman. I know. I know. <laughs> I, I have to say, I probably, I probably am more judgy than I should be, actually, um, which is not a good thing. But, um, you know, I, it's not a conscious thing. I think it's, it's just what I'm fascinated with. Right. So like, I just, it's kind of like, you know, babies with you, if you're in, you know, in, in that time of your life, you know, you just look at them and you're like, I just want more of that. Um, and so we it's change just, that to puppies or puppies. <laughs> right. So I just, you know, I, 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 if I see a story or a documentary or what, I just, I, I gravitate to it. Mm. I do, but I don't psychoanalyze necessarily as much as I probably should. <laughs> but I, I do think, but I do think at the end of the day, like if, if I had all the money in the world, I would probably try to ensure that there are more and more stories told about the regular human being and how they are ingenious or how he or she is ingenious um, and, and is able to make their, his or her world that much more meaningful and share that with others. Because I, I think it 
it not only enlightens you and think about your own world in a certain way and think about yourself in a certain way in a more enlightened and heightened way, but then you have that much more empathy and that much more shared understanding with someone else. So I do think it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, that that's an amazing statement. And I'm, I'm like, my brain is turning thinking of all the crossover between what you're saying and music and Hell you know yeah. how much some of this knowledge would is important to musicians too to understand like the connection between, you know, this creative thing that you're doing and, you know, understanding how to relate it to other people or I, I don't know, it's it just like, it sounds like there's like, there could be a big crossover between these two Things. Absolutely. Abs- I mean, Benny was enlightening me when we did our chat a few weeks ago because you know, he on. was talking. <laughs> it's true. Because, um, you know, when you were talking about the role of the musician and and what and, and, and I'm probably going to butcher it. So maybe, Benny, you can you can restate it after I try to state it to the best of my ability. But how, you know, when you're creating music and sharing music you're, you really are connecting with someone and you don't even know who's going to listen to it, but you know, someone's going to listen to it. And that just somehow creates this connection to the, to the world out there. Um, and then, you know, that that person who's listening is connecting back with you. And it just is like this kind of, you know, the tightening of connections amongst people. I mean, it's a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. It could be and- codependent too, though. No, but you're telling a story too, which comes back to what you were saying about, you know, more people telling stories. So I think one yeah. of the big gaps right now is, is figuring out how the stories that people are telling, whether it's verbal or through music, how to connect that to the right people to hear it, which is, I guess, a big part where technology comes in and finding out, you know, maybe you have some perspective on that as like a salesperson, or, you know, an anthropologist, like how some of the best ways for people to connect the stories they're telling with the audience that's out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly, you know, from a from a media perspective, um, there are so many technologies now that uh, can leverage insight from your behavior about you and what's important to you, and then also ensure that when messages and and so so leverage that in the messaging themselves, and then ensure that the message is meeting you at the moment when you are most inclined to want to receive it and in the way you are most inclined to want to receive it. So for example, like I I just love beauty and fashion. I glamor. I just, I just eat it up. And I got to say like my social media feeds, my news feeds, it knows it. And I'm like, I'm okay with that because it just (laughs) makes me happy. And uh, if I can investigate that pair of shoes one more time, um, totally cool with that. Uh, and that's a story, right? That, that advertisement around that pair of shoes is a story. But does it cater to you specifically? Like, because I think you're bougie. Does it, do you get Louboutins or is it like me where you get like Payless in your feet? Cause I like shoes too, but I don't right. feel like I'm, I'm, I'm the same demographic economically speaking in an anthropomorphic uh, it's mindset. It dreaming. It's not that I'm necessarily going to buy those shoes. I just want to, I can, I, I want to dream. You know, I during COVID. Um, Hold on, I'm going to ask a direct question. Do you have a, a a pair of Louboutin shoes? I do. All right, so they're just they're they're, they're going to get you back. It's going to. I wore they them know. last week. Let me tell you, I wore them last week. I hadn't worn them in a thousand years, and I said to my daughter, "No mistaking, just because it's expensive doesn't mean it's actually comfortable." 
Or oh, you have to suffer for fashion. Wearing. Don't you know this? You have if it, you have to suffer for fashion. You don't you don't get Chanel and it's like oh this feels great. It's like this I need to tape that in. I need to walk, <laughs> hold my breath. But you look great because it's Chanel. Well, sometimes it it does smell right, feel like feel right, like really. But then you're right. Sometimes it does. And 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 honestly, like. I, when I say, I, you know, sometimes I just want the glamour. I just want a dose of glamour. Uh, I, and and it doesn't mean I'm going to buy it. So during COVID, for example, I um, I got hooked on the Gothamists. So the Gothamists is in New York, as you'd expect. New York publication. And every day they would publish the death numbers and the COVID numbers. And, the da, 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 and you could look at it by borough and you could look at it by age group. And I just was... I don't know. I was drawn to that every single day because, you know, the numbers in New York City were just, and, and, and at the beginning were just scarily, scarily high. So I would look at that and then I needed, I needed an antidote, you know? So I would look at those numbers and then I would go online and I would look at like anything, anything that was glamorous, right? Like, especially if it was a woman who was kind of my age, you know, and she just looked really hot. And I was like, yeah, I got to check that out. Um, is catharsis a big thing for, for marketing and advertising? Like Abigail kind of looks like this. We're going to show her models that are very similar to her and you could be her as well. Just a little bit of retinol. Yeah. Right. They, they don't know what I look like. At least as far as you I say know. that, come on, it's you work right. at Google. They, Tell us the truth. They, they know, know what you as look far like. as I know, they know what I search for. So then they know she like either it and all stuff. But, um, but you know, here's the funny thing. So once we got, once I got the vaccination, I stopped looking at the Gothamist numbers, but I did not stop looking at the glamour feed. I still need my glamour feed every morning, even if it's from the sun, you know, like I just need to see that stuff. So it's, it. some of it is just to fill, to feed me and feed my soul. And some of it's because I could eventually buy it and, and, and it works. I do buy it. That's interesting. I was, you were making me think about, yeah, how every time I'm having a life crisis, I have to go back and watch the full series of Gossip Girl. And it's, it's sort of the same, right? the yes. same like psychological construct where it's like, I just need my like fantasy land with the glamour to just like totally immerse myself in that. I thought you were going to empathize about her Louboutin shoes and her conversation <laughs> with her daughter about how they're not I comfortable. Do, I do empathize with that, but, but yeah, I know, but it's, it, it's super interesting. Like just, you know, the understanding the habits that people have and, you know, the things that we're drawn to and like how to maximize that. If you're, you know, if you're on the product selling side, I guess maybe that's yeah. what you have insight into is exactly, like, you know, figuring out how to pair the things that, you know, people are looking for and get those things in front of them. And, and make it even more meaningful than seemingly the product is itself, right? Because you mentioned Louboutin and um, Benny, and they, that brand has done a remarkable job in marketing itself. The actual, you know, patent leather on the shoe and the red sole mm -hmm expensive is that you know you got a design you got to pay for a design how expensive is that right so if the sheer price the sheer value of the product itself is not nearly as high as the value of the brand of that shoe 
Yeah. And to use another example, what I was going to reference Manolo Blahnik, if anyone's familiar, I mean, for the girls listening, the sex in the city movie where she's Mr. Big leaves the shoes. When I got married, the first thing when you have to pick something blue, I was like, I want those blue Manolo Blahnik shoes. That's going to be my wedding shoe. And, you know, it's this iconic thing that's like everybody knows, oh, it's they don't even think of the designer. It's like, oh, yeah, that's the sex in the city shoe, you know, from that scene. So that like that's a huge part of that brand. A few letters different, but I've been saying since the 19th century, Louis Vuitton has been saying, I'm better than you with that ugly brown pattern. Totally. If you go watch the Antiques Roadshow, if you get a 1902 like chest that was on the Titanic that sunk and it's Louis, Louis Vuitton, it looks the same from 125 right. years totally. ago. That's what you go and spend $53,000 on now. Totally. Of course, but the irony is, is that the people with the Birkin bags are like, yeah, but I spent $72,000 on this crocodile and you could keep your chest. That's the crazy thing. I mean, at what point is there diminishing returns? Can you explain the Birkin, the Birkin bag to me? Because I saw one in first dibs. That's the thing where they basically show you a bunch of expensive things that you can't afford. And I literally looked at this and I understand $9,000 for yeah. a Louis Vuitton. I understand $12,000 for a Chanel. What makes a Birkin bag other than literally just flexing $72,000. Tell me as a, as a fashionista woman that knows way more than me about everything. So I, I have to say, I am, I, Siobhan, I, I'm curious what you're feeling about this is, I'm not a bag person. Like if someone handed me a really nice bag, I'm not going to say no, but I would f- invest way more in this, you know, the body than I would in a handbag. So I, I, I don't, you're talking to someone who do, personally, who doesn't really understand it. That being said, in, you know, the handbags went like hotcakes during COVID. They couldn't keep up with demand because all these rich people weren't going to restaurants and they weren't taking trips and they weren't going on their private jets. So they just bought all these handbags, right? And the price <laughs> of handbags went- It's when, so interesting. Yeah, and same with Rolexes, <laughs> Rolexes, by the way. And Pot- Patek Philippe's, like they couldn't, yeah. Right. Rolexes you, backed up for totally, like 10 years. I, I, in fact, I was looking for a, um, what do you call it? A, a, a pre-owned, AKA used um, <laughs> Rolex or whatever. I couldn't get that either. I couldn't get that either. So, um, so, but forget about my response. Let's talk about human beings' response to handbags. It's, so clearly that's an indication that people, they want things of value. I mean, you, we can interpret this every which way, right? I mean, in one, on, on one hand, why would you invest anything in anything? Why do you need a fancy car? Why do you need a fancy bag? Why do you need a fancy, wah, right? There's value in having these tangible, symbolic things around you. It's a symbol of somehow status for you. Um, and it's there in your face. It's screaming at you, right? This pretty bag is basically staring back at you saying, you're worth it. You could afford this. You somehow are elevated um, beyond someone else. Now, that's different than sometimes these shoes also make you look freaking awesome. That's worth it for me. I don't care about the status. I really don't. I care about, do I look hot? And yeah. that gives me a status. But that's why I got way. a Jaeger Couture. Because I wanted to be like, oh, you have your Rolex? Well, look at my skeleton Jaeger Couture. Well, that, I'm, I'm impressed. I really am impressed. How, how do I get Thank me one you. of those? 
Um, I actually got it from the Ukraine because it's a hundred years old and it was a pocket watch. It's called a marriage watch. So for broke people like me that want to like be cool to bougie people like you, I buy old watches that probably were from a dead soldier in like World War One or two. And then they just kept it in the movement and then just recased it. And now it looks I, I love awesome how you think wrist. I'm bougie. I'm wearing a, a shirt that I bought off of Amazon for like... $10. Yeah, but you have good taste though, so it oh doesn't matter. Oh my god, it's come on. I've, I've seen I've seen you on on the Google search. You look bougie in every picture. You look like you're a, a rock star movie. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I couldn't tell if you were an actress. I was like, but she's an anthropologist? I thought she was in Sex in the City and yeah. Gilmore Girls. Like wasn't that you when you were younger? You were you were the young girl, right? In Gilmore Girls. I will take that. Listen, I do I do position myself as a performer. Okay, I'll tell you a little story. So I, I decided to switch gynecologists, okay? Because oh, like, I was like, not expecting that to start <laughs> off that way. Corey so, and I are, are just going <laughs> to... You can edit this out if you'd like. So I decided to switch gynecologists because I'm, I'm of a certain age where like I need, I need like someone to actually help me with certain things. And so, I, you know, the guy class I have right now, you know, they just take insurance and they see you for three seconds and you're like, you're fine, bye-bye. So I said, no, I need someone who's gonna listen to me and like take into account what I'm what I'm going through and what I need and blah, blah, So I said to her, let me just, let me just put it out there. I'm a performer and I cannot look like shit. I cannot like, you know, I got to, I got to look good. And she, she's like, what? I thought you worked for Google. I'm like, yeah, but listen, I'm a public speaker. And while sure they pay me for my job, they pay me for my content, but they also pay me for my delivery. And so like nine times out of 10, they're not going to remember what I say, but they are going to remember, you know, and you, you hear that story. Like they remember how they, how you made them feel mm -hmm. and how you made them feel is, in large part, the performance itself. Mm. So, you know, I, that's, that's, that's what connects back to the gynecology story. Cause I'm like, I'm not going to let myself go to pot, like help me figure this out. <laughs> uh, and so, um, yeah. So when you say like, oh, I look like I'm so bougie, it's probably cause I, I, I needed to spruce things up a little bit as I'm, as I'm a performer. Uh, I want to ask about how you got into public speaking, but before we get off the the question of talking about products, I just want to ask your opinion. We were talking about handbags and shoes and stuff. Yeah. What is your opinion on, you know, what people are relating to or looking for when they consume music or art, let's say, you know, so we're talking about the draw and the value of a yeah. Birkin bag or Louboutin shoes, but like what, you know, just, just for us to learn, let's say what, as musicians, what are we looking for that, or what are people looking for when they are presented with music or trying to connect to music? Oh man. I mean, I could write a 5,000 page dissertation on this seriously, right? Because music means so much in, to, in, to, to people in different ways. And so there's so many different types of people. There's so many different types of music and there's so many different moments that, that will demand different types of music. Right. So, um, so if I were, if I were a responsible, um, intellectual, I would probably have to answer this in, you know, 5,000 pages. I'm not responsible. <laughs> so I mean, I can give you my answer, answer it in question form. 
<laughs> so I will answer it, you know, in, in, you know, off the cuff extemporaneously. Um, and, um, look, I think there, there are going to be different, just like you have different types of clothes to meet different needs and moments, same with music, right? So the music I listen to when I'm working out versus the music I listen to when I'm walking to work versus the music I listen to when I'm doing work, right? That's all different. And I have different needs. And so the music will reflect, my choice of music reflects my, you know, unique needs at that moment. That being said, um, there are other, I think, fundamental human needs that we all have that um, music can so, you know, so suit. For example, I just, I'm watching the, um, Leonard Cohen documentary. I don't know if you started watching that on Netflix. And like this guy, he, 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 like someone was saying that he would call himself a minstrel, right? He, he, a, pro- a prophet. He, yeah, he's making music, but he's, he's connecting with God and religion and spirituality. And that he's bringing that to us, right? Hallelujah. So I do, hallelujah. hallelujah. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so, and there's no surprise so much of religion is music oriented. So I, I do think all of us, no matter what socioeconomic background you, you're from, you know, no matter what country, whatever, there's everyone has a spiritual aspect to them. In some cases, more heightened than others, but like you all want to kind of connect with that greater force. Right? So, and music helps do that. So that's one thing. I think also, a fundamental need of all of us, which is why we're having such a good time on this chat today, is to connect. You know, and that seems obvious, right? We, you know, you try to give your friends, your, your kids, you know, play dates so they can connect. It's so freaking fundamental. And I feel like in our culture, we forget about how important that is that we as a species cannot do it alone. Well, hold on, because I, I feel like what, what you're saying is a big contention in the gatekeeper society of heavy metal music because when i was in high school and i wore an iron maiden shirt i'd walk around and everyone like most people would just beat me up and be like you don't play sports you loser but then there'd be the other guy in the pantera or the metallica or the megadeth shirt and we just like point at each other i'm like you're cool but now because of the jenners and because of the kardashians every lady and woman and even you know people have no idea are wearing slayer hella weight shirts and all these things so i don't know who's one of me anymore so are we really connecting or is it just a falsehood you know what i love this example because i think that again shows the the multitude of purposes for music because on the one hand heavy metal helped you stand out which is fundamental to human beings like we you know we we want to stand out and we want to connect Right. So how does music help you stand out? That's what's going to be a, a key driver for what music you choose, because you want to be the one who's at the, you know, who's singing it first, who's hearing it first, who's sharing it first. Right. Um, you want to be able to define yourself to others through, you know, some people do it through clothes. Some people do it through what they read and some people do it through what music they listen to. But at the same time, we want to connect. And, you know, I I'm sorry that, you know, how you used to connect that source no longer exists because everyone's wearing fundamental, you know, the, the heavy metal shirts, but you'll, I, I trust in your ingenuity, Betty, you will find other ways to ensure you find the real deal 
if it's not through the T-shirt. Well, like every metalhead does. Like, do you listen to that band? Tell me right. five songs yeah. by them exactly. right now or take the shirt exactly. off. Exactly. Exactly. And so you're either Poser. in the tr- you're either in the tribe or you're not in the tribe. And that's how you know music. Says the can Jew to the Jew. That. Right. Exactly. So so anyway, I think the answer to it at the end of the day is look, everybody's individual, everybody has unique needs and moments, and music will will match the different types of music match those moments, but at the end of the day also. We're all human beings with some consistent needs. The need to elevate yourself and connect with something bigger than yourself, the need to stand out, and the need to have human connection. And music does does all of that. So Yeah. Well it's it's interesting because you know, from our perspective on the music side, it's like, you know, I think a lot of in a lot of ways we lose sight of those sorts of things because we get so myopic and like granular sure. with producing stuff. And it's like, Oh, this has to sound perfect. It has to be perfect. And, you know, in the meantime, like over the years, in a lot of ways, we've kind of lost those fundamental concepts of, you know, being real and connecting with people and, you know, because you, you kind of get into this separate world of like music where you're looking at these very small things and then forgetting like, what is the bigger concept of just connecting sure. with people who may not be relating to the same things you're relating to as a musician. Absolutely. I, I think that's the curse of every specialty, right? Every, every um, type of um, industry is they, they do. They, and, and the question is whether that extra 99.9% of thought is really necessary or, you know, are, is it better to, Get it out there and make sure people experience it. I want to shift gears if that's all right. So we've talked a little bit about it, but we've kind of glossed over it. You know, you work at Google. Everyone uses Google, but no one knows like what the hell's <laughs> happening behind those doors. What was your first impressions joining that machine, essentially? Yeah. Well, this was 11 years ago. <clears throat> and 11 years at Google is like dog years. Like you, it's, it's like <laughs> an, an, a huge number. Uh, you know, it's it's not because we move so quickly and we do so many new things and we evolve so much. So um, it's, it was certainly very different. Than, is that what they say when they now. fire you? Thank God I was not fired yet. Yeah, I think, you know, there, there were a lot of laughs, but a week and a half ago. So it's a sensitive topic. Um, oh but um, but um, I would say 11 years ago, I got there and um I was, uh, I, I really felt like an imposter. Um, I really felt like I, they're going to think I'm crazy. I, and they kind of did, you know, cause here I am, I walk in with my leather pants and my bougie French, which I bought in Paris, like six inch heel boots. Um, and, um, uh, and I just was like talking human speak. And I think everyone was like, wow, <laughs> I can't compute. So, um, so, you know, that, that took a while to kind of figure out like, how, how do I make myself valuable here when it's so different? And, um, so that, so I think that was the, that was how I felt. It wasn't so much like it's scary or it's actually a very, you know, they put a lot of effort into their, um, real estate to make it fun and inviting and, and, um, animated. And so, and, and there's a culture that is very, um, kind and, um, supportive and collaborative. So 
that it wasn't that anybody was spooky or that the place was spooky or the place was like, uh, you know, something out of a, a sci-fi movie, nothing like that. Um, it was more that like, here I was joining this world where I just was a weirdo and how was I going to fit in? Let me and ask I had you this, because my buddy used to work at Kurzweil in, uh, back in the day, you know, Ray Kurzweil, that crazy yeah. coot who's awesome, yeah. you know, transcendent man, the singularity. Yeah. Um, he used to have, uh, there was like a playground, like a McDonald's old school playground inside Kurzweil. And they had instruments set up so people could just jam in the middle of the day. Like, is that around Google? Do you guys have like a bouncy ball room and like you can oh, jump I mean, off well, things and slides? We just to give a sense of scale. I mean, we're a very, very large company. So we have many, 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 many physical environments across many cities around the world. And each of those physical environments, while there is like a, a late motif, you know, to use musical terms. I, I took an opera course. Um, okay. So there are elements that are consistent office to office to office to office. But you're a snowflake. There are definitely differences, purposefully differences that reflect that, that what is native to that city or to that market. Um, so not everything is the same, but, but there certainly are a lot of playful elements to these offices, depending on the size of the offices. So I used to bring my kids, like they, they'd be off, they, you know, but I still had to work. So I'd bring them in to have lunch or whatever at the cafeteria. And then I would send them to the playroom. And literally there's like the video games you can play and people are, are playing ping pong and, um, you know, they're Legos. And so, yeah, so they're all these different. Hold on. But when your kids elements. are in the, in the video game room, is there another anthropologist with a PhD sitting behind like a dual pane glass going, okay, they're playing Mortal Kombat now. How long? No, no, they were not subjects of any research as far as I was aware. Um, yeah. As far as you're aware, but do you believe it's possible? No, I don't because I, <laughs> uh, I know what kind of company I work for and no, they are I'm very, just asking. Yeah, no, they are a very, very responsible company. So it's not as Orwellian as one might think? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, yeah, I mean, I, mean, fact, I, I have I a droid. I mean, nobody understands me. Can you explain this to people? Because, I, I mean, I love the Google universe, but everyone's like, use an iPhone. But an iPhone to me just, it's, it's, it's like, take here, take your soul, put all of your music in a different format. And that just sounds like work. Why, yeah. why, why does, why does Apple make things so hard for people and yet they still have so much brand share? Right. Well, why? If you're a, de if you're a developer, you're going to want an open source technology and Apple is not open source. So uh, I don't know, but um, yeah, the, the Apple hooks you in because you can connect every, you know, and because well, you feel like closed. you're the chosen one, right? You, you can, feel well, like you you're connect the chosen everything one. to everything. Only other Apple people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm an Android person and not because Google forced me to be an Android person <laughs> like that. You could choose an Apple phone if you wanted to. Um, but I just, I went, I had, um, Blackberries in the old days, old, old, old days. And I got an iPhone for work and I didn't really like it. And I just went back to Blackberry. And then when I got to Google, I was like, just give me the, give me the corporate phone. And I was happy. And all my kids have that because I'm too cheap to get them an Apple. <laughs> so, they, so I get the, you know, the Samsungs and so forth, but I'm perfectly happy. You know, I, Says I don't, the I don't get it lady either. that works at Google. I'm too cheap to buy the <laughs> Apple phones. We'll just use the Google ones. Yeah. You, you may, I may be bougie, but I'm also smart. Smart. <laughs> we can smart.
Wicked smart. <laughs> well, you were you were on a good story about like getting into Google and and you know feeling a little bit out of place with the human talk and like the techie people. So yeah. so like what? How did you sort of reconcile that? Can you talk about like sort of carving your path a little bit more? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, you you, you have to translate, right? Everyone has to be a translator in some shape or form, right? Um, again, which is why if you don't understand human beings and you don't know their language, you, how are you going to make your way in this world. Um, so I had to translate what I was doing, all this anthropology stuff into something that would be of value to my colleagues and my clients. And the, 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 the way it became valuable was actually because my clients were intrigued by it. And then my colleagues were looking around the room and they were like, I don't know, I'm having what she's having. Right. Um, so little by little, uh, they would put me in front of all clients and then put me in like in front of mass numbers of clients, put me on stages, right? And that actually was one of the ways I got into public speaking because they would trot me out and put me on stages to, to humanize and demystify, decode why we do what we do with all this technology so that, the, so that it, once clients understood it, then they would be willing to create and by advertising and you know leverage these platforms in ways that they weren't weren't willing to do before because they didn't understand their roles in our lives. And so once I was able to kind of translate that into the final language, which is dollars, then it's like, oh, okay, I see your value. Now at the same time, I understood that I couldn't just be a thought leader. I had to make sure that I was creating businesses inside Google that were going to lead to financial gain. And so while I was doing that, at the same time, I was starting to build teams and build um, uh, capabilities and offerings that could that you know tie the world that I was from, this creative anthropological world to uh, product that would sell to my clients. Can you, can you do me a favor? Can you take that same modus operandi and decode it using you as the lens? So let's say I have a giant Venn diagram and over here is all the beauty products and over here is watching the death tolls by stats. Where What's the middle of that and how do you understand you, Abigail? Like, yeah. how, do you fit into that? Yeah, I, I think, I'll tell you one thing. I, I do not believe, in, and it's funny because Leonard Cohen was referencing this too. It's, it's amazing what your what your brain will hear, you know, what it picks up on um, when when it's primed too. So uh, Leonard Cohen was talking about the he was being interviewed as to like he's a author and a poet and a songwriter, and they were just like, I don't it's this melange, I don't really get it. And he's like, well, I don't those terms don't mean anything to me. I am who I am and I do these things, right? Similarly for me, I there are different sides of me. And by the way, this has become now one of my key narratives that I speak uh, on big stages around. But like uh, there are different aspects to me that may seem inconsistent. I don't believe in this, you've got this personal brand, right? Like what the hell does that mean? You know, that, you know, there are different sides that make me who I am. And while they may seem inconsistent, they totally feel connected for me because they are me. So the fact that I'm caring about the COVID numbers speaks to, um, you know, the mother in me, the responsibility 
the responsible person in me, the planner in me, and the glamour side of it speaks to the aesthete in me, right? And the the feminine the feminine person that is me, the um, the lover of beauty and um, culture. So they may seem disparate, but that is that is what composes me. So it's not so much a Venn diagram, it's just one big circle that, it, yeah, that exactly. has all of it. And they all feed each other, right? So I was saying that, you know, what I speak about so now- So we all and, just paramecium's, we're just one circle, just single-celled organisms going around. Look at you around, throwing out these big words. Being symbiotic and then learning through osmosis. Yeah, nine times out of ten, it's, it's a real word, and it, and it means what he thinks it means too. So it's, I think that's right. I, I feel superfluous. I, I, <laughs> I, it sounds like my son who plays Minecraft. He's like, I'm in this biome now, and he's like, I'm like, what, <laughs> what, what's that? Oh. Um, but yeah, it's this like, not only are these disparate sides of ourselves who, what make us who we are, but we, if we're clever, should be combining them. Right. Because when you combine unlike concepts and notions, which is at the heart of creativity, that's a lot of what I speak about as well. You come up with new novel conceptions. So here I am at Google, for example. I'm like, they're going to fire me because I know nothing. Right. That's my feeling. So what did I do? I go to my crutch. I told you anthropology is my crutch. And I'm like, well, I, I may not know a ton about technology, but I know a hell of a lot about anthropology. So like, how do I take this side of me that seems so disconnected from this world called technology and combine them to come up with new solutions, unique solutions that make you stand out? And I've been doing that my whole life, just combining these seemingly unrelated sides to create new approaches, new solutions, make sure I don't get fired, right? <laughs> Whatever it is, get me, give me a leg up. Um, and so I actually love the duality or multiplicity of different sides of myself and others. As a dum-dum. So basically what you're saying is like, you're the chemist and you're like, sodium, you really, 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 uh, you kill people. And chloride, you kill people, but together, salt, yeah, right. delicious. Right. right. Is that, that's right. kind of what you do. Right. And yeah. then you make a solution. So you just yeah. add water. Right. And guess what? My mommy's a chemistry professor. It makes so much sense. <laughs> and she dresses to kill. I mean, she's like, it's that's amazing. where I got my fashion sets from. Well, let's let, let's use some of these concepts you're talking about as like a case study. So, you know, coming up with creative solutions to create a product or connect people with something or get people to buy something. So, for example, you have a podcast. We have a podcast. You know, when we try to figure out how to connect with people or how to. The human code. You know, the human yeah, code. So, an awesome podcast, may I add. <laughs> well, so what is what is the secret? Or maybe there isn't a secret, but what, what are some insights into, you know, how to craft, like, let's say what we're doing here or or some of the ways that we share it, that that we find the people that want it or want to listen to it or want to engage in it? So I'm hearing two different questions. Okay. Happy to answer both. But I'm hearing two. I'm hearing one, you're you know, the conversation before was around relating seemingly unrelated concepts and notions to come up with new ideas. How do we do that in the show? Or, and I'm hearing, I have this show, help me figure out how to connect it to more people. I would say the second was a little more what I was leaning oh, okay. towards. But, yeah, this but, entire uh, 
show was just a way to get you to consult for us. So. <laughs> no, but it's interesting for anybody that's, that's, that's creating something, you know, and with us, I mean, we, we have this podcast, but we also are in a band together. So we are always trying to think of ways to sort of have the crossover between the two and have one share the other. So there, there's a little bit of both those questions in there, but for anyone, you know, that's, that's trying to get people to consume a product, you know, we can use this as an example. Right. What would be your insight? So how do you, how do you build an audience? Yeah. Right. Um, well, there's certainly, you know, obviously let me do some caveating and then I'll get to my answer. Obviously you got to think about the platforms by which you're building that audience. Right. Um, because different platforms speak to different audiences and attract different audiences. And then the messaging you would have on those platforms is going to befit those platforms. Um, but forget that for a second. That's the media side of it. That's a calm strategy, if you will. Um, I would think about really, if you, if you want to extend your reach, which I think is what you, you're saying you do, ask yourself, what is the value you're giving the world? Not what do you talk about, but what do you, why do you exist first? And once you understand why you exist and the value you're really bringing, everything else then feeds it, right? Um, and, and you can find a connective tissue if it's truly valuable to many more people than you would expect. Oh, that's that's really deep. That's, like, that's, that's yeah. like poetry. So I made up a term to describe, you know, one of the, the in the anthropological research we did to describe um, what happens in, on YouTube a lot. And what I call it is a synaptic play, right? And it's that notion of like bringing these unlike things together. So my my brother, if you think I'm smart, like you you have no idea. My siblings are wicked, wicked smart. My brother is like wicked, 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 wicked smart. He got his PhD in cognitive neuroscience. So I'm <laughs> like, so I say something about synaptic play and he gives me this look like, Abby, you can't just make that shit up. It doesn't, you know, and I'm like, yeah, well, it's bringing it in the box. So whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, but yeah, I, Hey, I would, I would be so honored to be the charge for your synapses. So back to, back to this question about how to reach more people you know, I would start with yourself and like, wh what is, what are you really trying to offer? Now, in some cases, you still may have to go and look at the world around you and say, what do you think the country, the, the world really needs and how are you fulfilling that need? So it's kind of both ends. And so if you want to stand for with your podcast and with your music ensemble, if you want to stand for X, Y, Z, you know, see if go and look around you, look at a, look at the larger population that you're trying to attract and find out, you know, is that what could that actually be something meaningful to them? Because back to my neurotic guitarist story, like I'm watching Benny do his thing on YouTube. You know, Eddie's sharing me these videos and I'm just going like, what do I, how, how am I going to, what am I going to do with that? You know, and then, and then eventually we're like, oh, but wait a minute. I, I actually care about the people who don't normally listen to the neurotic guitarist or watch the neurotic guitarist. And like, how can we make what Benny does, his brilliance, like be that much more meaningful to people outside of that sphere? And once it became less about the, you know, 
I can't even speak eloquently about guitars in, in any way. But once once it was like beyond just the the twing 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 twing, you know, and whatever. No, it's the, a connect. Listen, I think you you nailed it earlier. It's not about guitars. There's a connectivity between the people that watch what I do. Um, because like, I mean, yesterday I got my favorite comment ever. A guy basically said his his wife is cheating on him. He knows, but he found my channel and therefore he's happy. This is like a true story, but there's a connectiveness between the people. Cause it's like, I know my audience, you're like living in your basement. You listen to Metallica. You have, you're, you're, you're a gatekeeper right. just like I am. And like, we know our own. So we're like on the Iron Maiden shirt across the pond to the other Metallica shirt. And so as much as it's about guitars, the thing that differentiates what I'm doing, I think a little bit is I try to bring in my personal, like I'm, I'm the guy that's watching the video. And then right. we have a relationship. So it's a right. symbiotic thing. It's the connectiveness. So I just want to bring that out that you nailed it in a lot of ways. So you're not as disparate from it as you think you are. Well, and I think what you're saying too is that it's not just the guitar, it's the me. And you, you're, <laughs> you're a certain type of person with certain types of values and certain types of lifestyle, blah, blah, blah. And so you bring that forth as well. But, and neuroses, right. But I'm even going a step farther. Because I'm saying there are people out there who may not live your life, who may not care about guitars the way you care about guitars, but could still be intrigued by what you're doing because at a higher level, you're, you're doing something that goes beyond the guitar and that someone may want to, like, and you were kind of saying this too, like they want they, they, they to connect with something that you're saying at a higher level about music or about getting into shit, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, you know, my husband will watch these these documentaries about the making of the Hoover Dam, right? And I'm like, who gives a flying fuck? But like for him, it's just intriguing to get, he's not gonna go and dig a dam any, anytime soon. But just the, the, the passion and emotion and, the politics and the intricacies that went into making the Hoover Dam huge, you know, a huge endeavor is what motivates him to watch the show. So, so yeah, so I think, you know, kind of conceive of like, what, what do you, what could you be giving a larger audience because you stand for something even greater? And what is the larger audience out there? Not everybody. You don't have to be for everybody. That's the broad, the years of days of broadcast is over right? You don't have to be everything to everybody, but there's probably more people out there who need something that you can bring them. Find out what that is. And then, and then the key is like, how do you not disappoint your core in order to speak to the other? Yeah. Yeah. I think the same struggle applies to music too. It's, that's a, something that people struggle right. with when they do new albums, but go, go ahead, Ben. Well, I was going to say, do you, when you walk around Google, is the uniform just like have a shirt that says like, find out what that is on everybody's shirt so that you walk around so like everything you just you find out about it because you're google i mean what's it like I, walking I into that building that. can you make that shirt for me i want that shirt <laughs> ron, ron that shirt. actually from star set has a uh, has a merchandising company and he can do small run shirts so uh we can uh, we can facilitate it there you go that's another another aside to your neurotic guitarist uh, or or your 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 podcast right you can make anyone anyone who comes who, who sparks a, a new t-shirt line you know gets a t-shirt this so. is a LinkedIn for us. We're just connecting people. We're just right. a conduit for which you get connected. I've always thought we should wear t-shirts that have little one-liners, but no one else is on board with that. Hey, I'll take so. I'll take free t-shirts all day. Anything. Really? Yeah. I have so much swag t-shirts. You could have all my Google t-shirts if you want to. 
if we can be, we'll be sponsored by Google. Is that a thing? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, if, you, if she works at Google and and she sends us Google shirts by de facto, yeah, right. we're sponsored by Google. Yeah. Isn't and, that true? I mean, I mean, Siobhan, let me ask you a question. Why is it that every time I get like a swaggy shirt or a sweatshirt, you're always like men's medium? Exactly. And I'm thinking like, can you please give me like a children's large? Do yeah. not give me a men's medium. Like what woman, what self-respecting woman wants to walk around with a baggy, swaggy t-shirt? I Nobody. completely agree. I have the same thought about cars sometimes, you know, like, like as women, sometimes we want like certain areas in cars to be accessible like this for my bag, or I want to put my phone yeah. on the dash, but then the dash is like this and everything's falling to the back. And I'm just like, there is no way that a woman was ever involved in the design consulting of totally. this car because I want nothing to do with this setup. <laughs> totally. I feel the same way about what channels in the hotel rooms on the TVs in the hotel rooms get chosen Yeah, or in the gyms. It's like, how many different ESPNs do you need? <laughs> Sorry, guys. It's like two are like their eyes are glazing over. It's like, no, it's, I think it's they should all be showing. ESPN. Yeah, it sounds like something you should you should pursue. You, you can have a, your own consulting company just to get women in these places where these things are being designed. And uh, totally, I, I think on a daily a daily basis, though, I I would say I encounter things like this where it's like, who thought of this design? You know, it's just a different perspective. You know. New um, segment with Siobhan Cronin. Who thought of this design? Go, Siobhan. Go. I think that's awesome. I'm there. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Yeah, I mean, business travel is so male-oriented. It's it's horrible. As I said, even the, the gyms, you know, they outfit the gyms with, like, with tons of weight and then maybe like one cardio thing and it's dank and Blech. Or like, as I said, the, the TV channels are all like, okay, so you get five ESPN NFL, then you get like another set of NFL, then the golf channel. I'm like, can someone just give me like a good HLN <laughs> like, or something that the chicks watch? But wait a minute. I've, I've flown uh, I've flown mint class at JetBlue and they offered me like Moscato. And I'm like, that's definitely cater pandering to women. Because, I mean, most of my guy friends won't admit that they love Moscato, Moscato or Prosecco. They're just lying. Because it's jet blue and it's a blue bottle. That makes so much sense. We have a few minutes left of the show. Um, but can we talk about your, you know, podcast and your you know, show that you've been doing and, and what got you into doing that? My podcast, which Benny graced us with his presence on, is called Human Code. And uh, the concept around it is that... Um, there are so many things we do with technology we sometimes don't even realize, but they show us who we are and how we live and what we value. And so what I'd like to do is dig into different subcultures, whether it's the culture of guitar playing or it's the culture of um, making movies or whatever, and how the use of technology reflects the, the, those subcultures and what people value. And, uh, and it just gives me a chance to dig into these different worlds and meet different people and, and understand uh, what makes them tick and how they've evolved. So it's a, uh, it's a podcast for now. Uh, we hope to turn it into a TV show one day and be able to go and travel to all different types of cultures and um, really kind of share the beauty and ingenuity uh, that is um, so... Um, you know, so embedded in these cultures and people just don't realize, they just don't know. You know, that, that was the beauty of doing my anthropology study with all these technologies. It's like, you think people are 
Are you allowed to swear on this show? Oh, yes. yeah. Okay. So, like, you know, people, lots of people like to think that other people are just dumb fucks. Like, you know, what are they doing? Why are they, why are they playing these stupid games on their on their computers? They're like, why are they watching those dumb videos on YouTube? Well, if you actually dig in and understand why people are playing those videos and what those vid- or what those games or understand why they're watching those videos or see what they're doing with those videos and how they're evolving them. It's a deep level of escapism because this world is is nothing but pain and suffering. And if I can't play, you know, Minecraft, I'm I'm I can just distract myself from the fact that every moment is just I just want it to go away. It could be that or it could be the way my son interprets this is my wicked. He's not nihilistic. No, my wicked. This is my wicked, wicked smart son. Wicked um, smart. My wicked smart son, and like you know, I mean, he was taking college grade math, like you know, who was when he was like twelve. Proud Jewish okay. mother. And uh, I am, but he would play these video games, not because he wants to escape or he hates his life, but he actually co-plays them. Right, he plays them with other people, and it's a form of world building. And that's pretty awesome. My and my son is a huge like he loves his bros, like loves his bros. Um, he's very connected to people. So, you know, at the outset, you could say, "Oh, my my son when he was sixteen. This is my middle son. When he he's just another dumb fuck in a and you know sitting on the couch eating his chips and playing with earbuds earphones on, you know, and playing these stupid games. That's if you want to look at it from that lens, or if you dig a little bit deeper." You see, you know, this is pretty powerful. He's trying to connect with his friends. He's trying to create, co-create. And how beautiful is that? That's really what's fundamentally critical about progressing in this world is creating the desire to co-create, to make the world a better place with other people. Are you not mad at Brock anymore, Siobhan, for playing Minecraft I never so was. much? No, I never was. I mean, well, he doesn't play Minecraft, but he plays, um, you know, a lot of games that really are world building, you know, and like, and that's the thing is that like I, Sim I City noticed or something? that he, no, uh, like Path of Exile and, and um, uh, Final Fantasy. He's a, he's very much into strategy games, but, and he doesn't play it for an immense amount of time, but I, I've noticed, you know, you can tell when someone kind of looks on it as like a little bit judgmental, like, oh, what is totally. this? But they're actually... You know, I don't even understand them. They're super high level. And to me, I'm like, yeah, that's amazing. That that is a creative muscle that's being exercised. You know, so I, I try to take the same outlook as you as like totally. curiosity and trying to see like what there, you know, nobody's looking to try and I don't know fundamentally that anyone just wants to waste time or waste their life away. There's there's something in it, even on the smallest level, that if you just take a moment to understand, absolutely you know, changes your perspective. Absolutely. I mean, my daughter. She plays NBA 2K <laughs> so that she can actually do all the post-game fun shit, right? Like, so she'll she's she, she'll be a basketball player and she just loves like going to the bar and picking up girls and stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't really, I haven't yet dug into that one, that aspect of the game playing. But um, but yeah, everybody has their everybody has is, their. Is this thing. where Freud goes? Tell me about your mother. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I know. And like, you know, I mean. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get off of that topic for a second, but um, <laughs> because my daughter is really a, a pacifist, but you know every every once in a while she's you know the, 
the, the characters start beating each other up in the park, you know, whatever. Well, that's an outlet. Maybe if you're quiet in life, right? But like when you go and play uh, these games, you go and you hit people in the head. You, like, channel, you, you, you channel, you channel yeah, something. You channel it. Yeah. You become a exactly. sniper, a sniper by night, like my like my vest, you know, says. But then during the day, it's like, no, I just work a desk job, and I'm I'm very uh, I'm very myopic, and I'm I'm totally, straight totally. straightforward. And it's much better that you play it via game than do it in real life and pick up a gum and gun and go to Walmart, right? Um, but to your sure. point, Javon, like, if you want to, you can be curious about anything and find the beauty in what people do for the most part. Look, there are some bad eggs out there, no question. But in some ways, it's important to understand why they do what they do too, so you can you know, figure out ways to stop it or channel it in different ways or whatever. But I, I'll tell you what gets me totally pissed off is when everybody just loves to be alarmist, like, oh my God, all the kids, they're on the social media. Uh, they're on the phone. It's so terrible. And I'm like, wait a second. Right. Because why don't you try to understand what they're doing with this social media? Now, I'm not saying they're doing great things 100% of the time, but I bet you 95% of the time, they're probably doing some good things. They're connecting with their friends. They're collaborating on homework. They're figuring shit out. I feel like it's a high you know? percentage because when I got an internet connection, I was not part of that 95%. <laughs> that was a different era, though. I mean, we, you know, yeah, it went growing like up with dial-up internet. <laughs> oh, is that something? What is that? <laughs> Yeah, but now you get you you got to discover it on your own in your own way in your own terms, you know. Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is like, I, so much of this going back full circle to the beginning of the conversation about you know, assume, assuming positive intent, right? Like I do that with anything. I just have to I assume positive intent. Now, I should learn and be smart if there's not positive intent, but for the most part there is, and let's figure out where it's coming from and why it's purposeful. And maybe I can use it and adopt it too. I'll give you an example. Everyone's like, get off your phone, your phone, your phone, your phone is so terrible, your phone is so terrible. Okay, now wait a second. Thanks to my phone, I look through everything. I look at everything now through a lens, a camera lens. Now you could argue, don't you wanna see the world? Put down the phone, put down the phone. But because I now have access to a camera lens, and I want to take pictures, I see things I wouldn't have seen before, right? Like all the gargoyles on the buildings in New York, I would just pass by, pass by, pass by. But now like I look through, I look through this lens and I see these beautiful pieces of artwork and that elevates my day. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, you know, this has been one of the more unique shows we've done. And I think, and, and that's in a, in a great way because uh, yeah. your perspective is something we haven't heard before. I hope everyone goes and checks out your podcast, The Human Code. You can find Human Code on like, you know, any of the usual places, Spotify, Apple, all that jazz. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else you want to let people know about before we- uh, No, I just, um, I'm so curious if you get any feedback because I know I'm a bit of a uh, a crazy bird compared to most people you have on the show. Quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's great to get a different perspective. And I think, you know, everything is applicable. Like we've talked, you know, you there, it's about combining things. So I yeah. think hopefully the audience that we have, I'm sure they'll be super interested to hear what you have to say. I mean, I learned a lot, so I'm excited to share it and see what people think. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, again, like I, ho I hope something resonated. Uh, but uh, again, it was just fun to, to chat with all of you. Really, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much for your time. It was awesome. We will see you guys next week. Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 158, featuring Damien Real, a technology lawyer who copywrote every melody ever. Check it out. Uh, I, I was doing a cybersecurity engagement uh, for a large Silicon Valley company that you, whose name you know that I can't talk about. But after a 12-hour day on the cybersecurity engagement, we were at the hotel uh, lounge uh, over beers, and I was talking with my collaborator, Noah Rubin, who is one of the smartest programmers I've ever known. And I said, Noah, you know how we can brute force passwords? And he said, yeah. I said, you know, what, if we could, what if we could hack music? What if we could make every single melody? And, uh, and Noah said, F yeah, I think we should do that. So within, uh, within a few hours, he had created a prototype that had spit out uh, I think 3,500 melodies, uh, and so uh, so we kept refining that, and uh, and I thought, boy, this is kind of a fun proof of concept uh, to be able to do. But then, as more I thought about it, I thought about the George Harrison case, and I thought about the problem in copyright that this might be able to solve. So the, um, so a cybersecurity engagement in front of a Silicon Valley company whose name I can't say uh, was the genesis of this thing. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road.